Our meditation this morning from the psalm that we have read together and that we have been singing together, Psalm 139. There is nothing more practical for Christian living than sound orthodoxy. Understanding truth with the heart is what defines duty. It is as we think right about truth, we think right about the gospel, that there will be right behavior. And Psalm 139 is a classic example of theology in practice, as it brings the deep doctrines and the lofty truths about God to bear on the daily issues of life. For knowing and submitting to who God is, is the ideal for Christian living. The very structure of the psalm reflects this obedient submission to God. You notice how the psalm begins with a declaration, with a proposition of truth that the Lord searches and knows. But see how the psalm ends. Now with David's prayer that the Lord might search him and know his hearts and his thoughts. I would suggest to you that even if David did not pray that prayer, God was searching him and knowing him. But because he knew what God was like, because he had that personal and experiential relationship with God, There was nothing more important to him than being right with God, submitting himself to the will and the work of God. That's my desire for myself and my desire in prayer as we meditate together upon this psalm this morning that we might know what it is to truly factor God in to life. The psalm develops in four stanzas. And in each of these stanzas, there's going to be a particular truth about God that then we want to relate to ourselves. So that's my simple theme this morning, God and me. But when I say me, I want you to think of you and you be the me that I'm talking about as I apply it to myself as well. God and me. If I were to ask how many of you believe that God is real, that's our confession. And my guess is that everyone here today would make that statement of faith that yes, God is real. But if we can cut through the profession and cut through just the jargon of our confession, In your heart of hearts, in my heart of hearts, how real is God? Do we know what it is to truly factor God in to every circumstance, to every situation in life? So I want us to look at these four amazing truths about God and see how these truths are to affect us personally, God and me. In the first stanza, we have 
the omniscience of God. The omniscience of God is that truth about God that speaks of his infinity in regard to what he knows. God knows everything. There is nothing that escapes his knowledge. That's the truth. But as we apply this to ourselves, here's the application that I want us to see, that because God is omniscient, he knows me perfectly. He knows me perfectly. God's knowledge is absolutely thorough. Thou hast searched me and known me. Word search, interesting word speaks of a spying out of the land, a prospecting for precious metals perhaps. It's a word that speaks of the investigation of a legal matter where all of the evidence is being collected. But it's strange that that word is used in relationship to God. I say God is omniscient, he knows everything, and in theology we say that God's knowledge is immediate. He knows everything right now. God never discovers anything. God does not have to find things out. God knows everything right now, completely, all time, past, present, future, every circumstance, every situation, every place. God knows everything right now. I, I know when my, when my boys were growing up, I think they thought at times that dad was omniscient because I seemed to know a lot about what they did when they thought I didn't know. But I had ways of finding out. I had ways of finding out. I didn't know those things immediately. And even to this day, my sons are grown and I'm still learning things now that they did then that had I known they did then, they would have been in serious trouble. I didn't know everything. But God knows everything. So why the word search? I say it's a word that speaks of a thorough investigation, a thorough examination. But the Lord uses terms like this to bring us to some degree of understanding. How can we understand? How can we begin to comprehend the infinity of God? The infinity of God. What is infinity? No beginning, no end. His knowledge, I say, is immediate incomprehensible. We cannot begin to comprehend the truths about God. Westminster's Shorter Catechism describes God. I say describe, you can't define God. To define is to put limits of application, but it describes God. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Every perfection of God is eternal, it is infinite, it's unchangeable, the infinity. The knowledge of God is absolutely comprehensive, but he uses a term here for us to help us somehow grasp what it is that his knowledge of us is so complete. He knows me completely. He's known me, the word know there is more than just an intellectual awareness. It's a term of special care, of special knowledge. You remember how Psalm 1 ends, describing the contrast between the blessed man and the wicked man. 
says in the closing verse there, I think it is, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked perishes. Well, the Lord knows the way of the wicked as well, but there is a special knowledge. There is an intimate knowledge. There is a caring knowledge. There is a selective knowledge that God has of his people. And he knows everything. He knows me. He knows me completely. And the psalmist emphasizes that by drawing our attention to the universality, the extensiveness of God's knowledge. Look at verse 2 and 3. Thou knowest my downsetting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compass my path and my lying down. Here's the language of inclusiveness. When I'm up, you know. When I'm down, you know. But not just those two extremes. It's a way of expressing everything that takes place in between those two extremes as well. You know when I get up, you know when I go down, you know everything I do between those getting ups and those getting downs. You know everything. There's not a part of my life, not a part of my existence, not a part of your existence that God does not know. No activity is excluded from that divine sight. He knows our thoughts from far. That's really more of a temporal word than it is a spatial word. You know my thoughts before I know my thoughts. You know my thoughts before I ever think my thoughts. God's knowledge, can you see, is absolutely immediate and incomprehensible because it is so universally encompassing. But it is not just. The knowledge of God that he has of me is not just. Awareness. Verse 3, you compass my path. That word compassed literally is to winnow, is to sift. The Lord is sifting. Here's a knowledge that is discriminating, if you will. As he investigates, he's discriminating. Not a passive knowledge, but an active evaluation of what he knows about me. Every word he knows. Every word I speak. Every word I think, every word that I mutter under my breath, every word that I utter with a tone that speaks perhaps more than the word itself, God knows it all. There is nothing about me. God knows me perfectly. A knowledge that is absolutely extensive. It's a knowledge then that becomes overwhelming, beset around, beset behind before, verse 5. You have your hand upon me to protect. You have your hand upon me to guide, to control. But there's no escape. It's beyond comprehension. This knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I can't begin to attain unto it. How can we comprehend? And David here was overwhelmed. He became absolutely overwhelmed with the reality that God knew him absolutely, that God knew him completely, that there was nothing about him that God did not know. That's true for me. And it's true for you. And the question today then is how real is God to us? Are we consciously aware Are we consciously aware of the reality of God who knows us completely? 
Oh, if we do, it's going to produce reverence, isn't it? It's going to cause us to worship him as the object of our fear. The knowledge of him is always linked to the fear of God. The fear of God, that reality of God that overwhelms our conscience. It's going to create reverence. It ought to give us confidence. It ought to give us confidence as well that there's nothing about us that God doesn't know. He's not blind then. God is not blind. He's not oblivious to our troubles. You have any trouble? God is not distant from that. God knows every circumstance of life. He knows every situation of life. He knows the troubles that I experience. And it's not a passive. It's not a passive knowledge. There's a caring knowledge. In all my affliction, he's afflicted as well, according to Isaiah 63 and the angel of the Lord. God cares. And God is purposed. He knows, I say, even my troubles. It ought to produce care in our conduct as well. If I'm aware, if I'm aware that God is aware of everywhere I am, of everything I do, that ought to catch me short. It ought to catch you short before you sin in his presence. Every sin we commit, every sin we commit is known by God. And if I factor that in, can you see how this ought to produce holiness and righteousness and uh, our right behavior in our life? If we are factoring this in, the omniscience of God, he knows everything. He knows everything and he knows me perfectly. It ought to direct me to worship him. It ought to direct me to live in a way that is pleasing to him, knowing that he knows the omniscience of God. In verses 7 to 12, the second stanza, we have the omnipresence of God. The omnipresence with God. God is everywhere. There's no limitations by God in regard to space. There's no limitations. And because of God's omnipresence, he is with me constantly. That's what I want us to see. That he is with me, he's with you constantly. God's presence is universal. You can see how that's developed in verses 8 and following. If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. Don't misunderstand what the psalmist is saying here. In this instance, heaven is not just referring to the place where God is, heavenly abode. Neither is hell here referring to the place of eternal torment. This is the word Sheol. Perhaps you've heard that word before. This is a word that sometimes simply speaks of death. It's a word that sometimes speaks of the grave or the body corrupts. And a few times, indeed, it speaks of the place of the departed wicked spirits, a place of torment, a place that we would call hell. But the term is always described as being low. Heaven is high. So the idea here is, very simply, 
The psalmist, no matter how high I go, no matter how high I go, no matter how low I go, God is there. You cannot escape God, no matter how high, no matter how low. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell on the uttermost parts of the sea, wings of the morning, that's east. The sea here from Palestine's perspective was the Mediterranean, that's west. So if I go east, if I go west, God is there. I can't escape the presence of God. The light, the darkness, all the same. All the same. All these polar expressions, all these opposite ideas demonstrate to us that there is absolutely no place. There is no place where God is not. A presence that is inescapable. David asked the question, where can I go from my spirit? Where can I flee from my presence? I don't think he's asking that question to try to find out where he could go, but to emphasize that there's no place that he can go. There's no place. There's no place to escape the presence of God. What a comfort that is. Is that not a comfort to you? Here's the Emmanuel concept. God with us. That concept, that statement that came to its culmination in the incarnation of Jesus, God with us. But there has never been a time. There has never been a time when God has not been with his people. The Emmanuel theology, the God with us theology goes from Genesis right through to Revelation and into eternity. God is with us. God is with us. Never leaves, never forsakes. So the darkness, the darkness that comes sometimes so fearful to us is not existent to him. The darkness, the light is all the same to him. But for us, there's something about darkness. Yeah, there's something about darkness that can be frightening, that can be a bit scary. I don't care how old we are. I don't care how tough we think we are. There's going to be circumstances. There are times when the darkness is fearful. We can't see what's there. We can't see what's there. We hear things and we imagine things. I remember many years ago now when I was working on my dissertation. I had a job as a night watchman. And part of my rounds were in this art gallery museum. And when I was being trained, we're all, we, when we had a little box, we had to turn a key to let them know that we hit all the right places. To turn the alarm off and walk up these steps and you open up this door in a museum part and ancient Near Eastern artifacts and things of that sort. And there was a glass, behind a glass display, there was a, a mannequin. And this mannequin was dressed in his Bedouin garments. And there he was. And I remember the first time I did this job solo, all I had was a flashlight, my key. And I walked up the steps, 
I turned my flashlight in on in that very dark room, and the first thing, the first thing that the beam hit was that Bedouin behind the glass. And it scared me to death. My heart was racing, and it scared me. Now, here's what amazes me. In that connection, I like to think of Psalm 23. You know, Psalm, everybody knows Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, literally, though I walk on the valley of the deep darkness where I can't see what's ahead, I can't see what's beside, I walk through that valley of deep darkness, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And it was the consciousness of the presence of God that enabled the psalmist not to be afraid in that deep darkness. And what amazes me there, I say, is the pace. Going back to my illustration, when I went through that place, I basically ran through each of those stations. I wanted to get out of there as quickly as I could. It was scary. Eyes looking at you, scary. But the psalmist, I walk. A pace of calmness, a pace of certainty, knowing, knowing that God was with him. What can be fearful to us, that darkness, is non-existent to him. He is with me constantly. So there's comfort there. There's comfort there, but there's also a warning there, isn't there? There is a warning there, because if... God is with me constantly, and I can't escape his presence. Then every sin I commit, every sin that you commit, is directly in his face. It's right in his face. Every rebellion is at the very foot of his throne. And sometimes we can convince ourselves, Jesus said men love darkness because their deeds are evil. We can sometimes convince ourselves, oh, it's dark, it's dark, God can't see. But the lightness and the darkness is the same to God. There's no, he sees. He sees, he's right there with us. If you're a believer, if you're a believer, you cannot sin apart from the presence of God. Will that not stop you short? Should that not stop us short when we realize when temptation comes? When temptation comes, oh, sin has its alluring temptations for us all. But when those temptations come, if it can grip our hearts that at that very moment, God is with me. God is right here, and if I sin, I'm doing this right in the face. It ought to stop us short. ought to stop us short. Oh, let us believe that God is real. Let us believe that God hates sin. And let us so live accordingly. God is with me constantly. We come to the third stanza. We come to the third stanza. And our attention here is on the omnificence of God. The omnificence of God. Not a word that we often use, I suppose, but the omnificence of God refers to his creatorship, the creatorship of God. Perhaps I could use the word omnipotent here because creation is uniquely a divine activity. 
Creation is the evidence of God's work. Only God can create. No man can reproduce. No man can duplicate. Creation is uniquely the work of the one true and living God. Power. But the theological word here is omnificence, the creatorship. The creatorship of God. And because he's the creator, here's the implication of this for me. He owns me completely. He owns me completely. Our design. You, you, you think of, of, of the creator. Because you create evidence of power for certain, creation is an evidence then of ownership. What is created is what you own. You think of the illustration that Jeremiah uses in chapter 18 of his prophecy. There's the potter. And the potter takes that lump of clay and that potter makes that clay in whatever way he wants. And it may to you or me, it may have looked like a great piece of pottery. But the potter looks at it, something there he didn't like, and he smashes it. But you say, it's a good piece of pottery. But because he owned it, he had the right to smash it if he wanted to smash it. He owned it. He owned it, and because he owned it, he had the sovereign right to do with it whatever he wanted to do. And so it is now with God. He's the creator. What is there that he has not created? All that is, all that is, he is made for himself and by himself. He's the creator. He owns it all. He owns it all. And because he owns it, he has the right to do with it what he wants to do. Now, we, we live in a day because of evolution where there's a lot of talk about creation, and rightly so. We want to defend those opening chapters of Genesis against all of the views that are contrary to it. We believe in the creation in six literal days. But yet I think sometimes as we even talk about creation, we just keep it out here. God, God made the world. God made everything in the world, and that he did, and that he did. But let's do what David did here as he personalizes this. It's not just that God made the world and everything in it, but let's bring it right down to where we are. God made me. God made me. My design in the mind of God. He made me. He made me on purpose. There's the folly and the sin to question and to disagree with that purpose. Oh, and sometimes we compare ourselves with others. We don't look like somebody. We don't do this. And we start to, sometimes people get upset with God because he made them the way he made them. No. He made us all in the image of God. Every one of us. I can look at everyone here and because we all, you all, and I am in the image of God, there's, there's something attractive about us. We're all different. No two of us the same. But our design, the way God has made us, is the way God wanted us to be. Don't compare ourselves with others. Don't look at how God made somebody else and say, I wish I was made like that. 
God has made each of us exactly as he wanted us to be. And he owns us. He possessed, can you see verse 13? For thou hast possessed my reign, that is my inner being. You possess me. But the language here of, of verse 13 is quite remarkable. For thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. That word cover literally means to weave. You have woven me in my mother's womb. Look at verse 15. I was curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. The lowest parts, which is the earth. Not talking about a hole in the ground or sometimes or somewhere in the depths. The earth, the lower parts, which is the earth in contrast to heaven where God resides. But I was curiously wrought. And that's the word that in Exodus describes the the working of the artisans as they made the garment of the high priest. Remember, the garment of the high priest was there for beauty and for glory. What a picture this is. Here's the great God. Here's this all-powerful God. Here's this God that is majesty. Here is this God that is wholly, completely other than anything and everything out of himself. He made the universe. He made all the big things. He made all the big things, the stars and the planets. and Yeah, he created it all. But he made me. And the way he describes, he made me, he wove me in my mother's womb with the same kind of artistry that was used in the sewing together of the high priestly garment. That's finger work. Weaving here, that's finger work. What an amazing picture. Here's the great God. He made everything that there is, but now the special care in making me. Just, just the finger work. God's fingers made me. Made you. How amazing. The details all worked out. Skillfully put together. According to his purpose. We are not none of us. Just the product of some biological act. Or chemical reaction. On the contrary. We're the work of God. The work of God. The fingers. The fingers of God have made us. Is that not reason then to have confidence that he purposed our existence before we were in existence? He brought us into existence according to his ordained purpose. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, somewhat difficult to translate. You can see from the italics there. Can I, let me translate verse 16 a bit more literally. All the days 
ordained for me, were written in your book before one of them came to be. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Each day of my life, in all the history of my life, ordained by God, our times. Because God made us, he owns us. We're in his hand. Our times are in his hands. Is there any better place for us to be? No matter what our circumstance of life, no matter going through a good providence or a hard providence, to know that our time are in the hands of God. All the times of life. Think of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 3, there are a time and a purpose for everything under the sun. A time to be born. A time to die. All in the hand of God. And it's already ordained. Like Jacob, we can say, I know not the day of my death, but God does. God does. When I was born, when I die, a time to weep, a time to laugh, all the times of life have been written in that chapter in his book with my name on it, so yours, a source of praise and confidence. All in wonder, fearfully and wonderfully made. Verse 14, fearfully and wonderfully made when I consider the creature to comprehend the creator is beyond us, but here is faith that lays hold of the fact that we're in God's hands. What the psalmist thought about when he went to bed what the psalmist thought of when he woke in the morning. When I awake, I'm still with thee. Nothing changes. Oh, can we let it sink in that these majestic theological truths about God are not not just doctrines. They're not just truths for theological students to come to somehow define. They're truths that ought to have an influence and an effect upon our daily lives. The creatorship of God. He owns me completely. And the final stanza, we have the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. He demands my loyalty and my conformity, the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is not so much a separate perfection or attribute of God. The term righteous simply means conformity to a standard, whatever that standard is. God is righteous. God is his own standard. When we talk about the righteousness of God, we're simply saying that God cannot be anything other than what God is. God cannot do anything contrary to who he is. 
the righteousness of God. Infinite, he's righteous in all of his perfections. His being is righteous. His wisdom is righteous. His truth is righteous. Everything about God, is, it conforms to who God is. And because God is who he is, because God is who he is, he demands my loyalty in contrast to the wicked. Here are those that hate the Lord. You're going to slay them. They're under your judgment. You own them too. But don't I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? Strong language. Strong language. But the word hate is not so much an emotional term. It's not so much a term that speaks of this abhorrence or emotional aversion that we have to something. It's primarily a word of the will. I reject them that reject you. I'm not going to take my part with those that reject you. Those that reject you are under condemnation. So there's a separation, there's a removal of ourselves from those that rise up against thee. I reject them. I reject them perfectly. I count them my enemy because they're your enemies. So we're going to, if you will, take sides with God. We live in a day where the battle lines are being more clearly entrenched from our own government at times. Whose side are we on? Whose side are we on? We take our stand with God. And it desires conformity. This is where we referred at the beginning. There is his closing prayer. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. His desire to be freed from any kind of self-deception. He welcomes here the divine scrutiny that would keep him from evil. He prays for that indispensable divine guidance in the ways of holiness. He wants to be conformed. It's it's God's will that he searches. He wants to be conformed now to that will of God. The righteousness of God demands our conformity to him. So let me pose the question that I posed at the very beginning of our meditation. In your life, how real is God? How real is He? Oh, we come to church on Sundays. We have our confession. But as we live day by day in the whole in the workplace, how real is God? May God enable us and help us by His Spirit to live in His reality, 
to know what it is to factor him into every circumstance and every situation of life. My times are in his hands. And to live in his fear. To live in his fear. God is real. God is real. God is real. Amen. Oh Lord, how thankful we are for thy word that reveals to us who thou art. That God is not the figment of our imagination. He is not just the subject of some dogma, but our God is real. And we pray, O Lord, that we would know what it is to appropriate that reality in our own lives. Not to leave it just as some cold subset of theology, but that might truly grip our hearts to trust Thee, to love Thee, to serve Thee, to fear Thee. O Lord, help us. For Thou art the maker of heaven and of earth. Amen.